Awesome. So good to see you this morning, church. Thank you so much uh, for choosing to share your Sunday with us here at Elam Christian Center. Manurio. We've come around the Word of God, so why don't you go on ahead, take out your Bibles, take your sermon notes out. We're going to get right into it. Today I'm preaching on the message, uh, Unity. Uh, 2007 was one of the greatest years of my life. Uh, it was my last year of high school, but also there was this thing called a school ball that everyone was preparing for in their last year. Uh, and so we were getting ready for that. And uh, you have to understand that the church that my parents had planted, an AOG church just out here in Manurewa, uh, everyone that went to that church, all the young people that went to that church went to the same school. So we all went to the ball together. We went as a pack. But we didn't go in a Hummer. We didn't go in a limo. We went in the family van, also known as the church van. And the problem with the church van is that oftentimes you can't really, um, it, it, it doesn't start when you turn the engine, you know, turn the, the, the key. And so you had to push start the van every single time. Anyways, we get to the school ball and we're having a blast of a time. It's, it's incredible. And then towards the end of the ball, I received this text message from my dad and he's like, the van is dead. And I'm looking at this text like, oh, okay. So I start to rally all of my, my cousins, all the family, all the youth kids that we all went to the school together. I start to rally them, but I can't seem to find nobody. You know? And then all I, the only person I found was my baby sister. So I look at her, she's looking at me. And she knew immediately that the van's dead. You know, so we make our way down of the Ellisley race course. We get to the bottom um, and my dad's parked right at the entrance door. And so we're like, okay, we get down there. And it was so crack up. I'm in my tuxedo. She's in, my sister's in her ball dress. And we are pushing this van. We're like the tiniest people in our family. And we're like pushing this van. And at the same time, I was like, Lord Jesus, if this van doesn't start before these people come out of this, this ball, take me now. Just take me straight cold now. No, I refuse to be caught out here in a tuxedo pushing the van. Anyways, we started pushing the van and it went. Thank you, Lord. And it went. But we jumped in the car. All of our family are in there and we're cracking up about the fact that these two little Samoans, because I was not this bulky and muscly back then. We were tiny and my baby sister was even tinier. But we were like, they were just cracking up at the fact that how did you two tiny people manage to push the car and get it started, you know? And so we were like, man, quite proud about the fact that our unity was actually on point. Our unity was the incredible thing about us that made us be able to, you know, it wasn't our strength. It was just the fact that we, like, no, we had a unified purpose. We're going to push this van and it's going to go in the name of the Lord. So we had a good laugh about it. But unity is such an important thing. Unity is such an important thing. Unity began with the Trinity. The God who created uh, this whole world and us is a God of unity. He is triune in nature. There is unity in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in perfect unity. Though they are three distinct persons, they are one God. Unity began with the Trinity. Unity is such an important part of our lives. It's even woven into the very fabric of our beings and who we were created to be. We are created in the image of God. The church, the body of Christ, is built on the unity of the Trinity. Unity is the natural state of anything that is submitted to God. Our unity is a powerful testimony to the reality of our triune God. And so if there's disunity amongst us, that means that we're dishonoring the very character of our God. If there's division amongst us, we stop bringing glory to our God. If, there is a, if we allow disunity to fracture the body of Christ, we come out of agreement with God and we come into agreement with the enemy. The Bible says, a house that's divided against itself 
shall not stand. If the enemy is going to rip a family apart, if he's going to rip a marriage apart, rip a church apart, rip a relationship and friendships apart, he's going to do it through disunity. He's done it before in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and he can do it again. And so today, I'm going to share a message about unity. This passage we're about to read paints a beautiful picture of what unity is. Here's what it says. Psalm 133, verse 1 to 3. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This psalm that we've read this morning is part of a group of psalms, group of 15 psalms that are called the Song of the Ascents. It runs from Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 135. And it was sung by people who were traveling to Jerusalem every year for the feasts. Feasts are celebrations or an observance of an important event that took place. And people would gather in Jerusalem, also known as Zion, to celebrate. Jerusalem was built on a height. People had to go up. Whenever you talked about going to Jerusalem, it was this idea of going up to Jerusalem. And whenever someone mentioned they're traveling to Jerusalem, it was people traveling up to Jerusalem. I want you to picture that for a moment. A family leaving their home, making their way up to Jerusalem, but now they're being joined together by their neighbor. They then get joined together by their extended family. People from their neighborhood are suddenly joining them. The closer that they got to Jerusalem, the more and more people would join in on their travels. But not only that, while they are traveling, they're starting to sing Psalm 120. Everyone would join in and they would begin to sing. Everyone singing from Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 135 until they reached their destination. How amazing would that have been? What an uh, incredible sight to see people from different families, different regions join together, emphasizing the theme of the Psalm, unity. Not only are they united with one purpose, but they were headed to Jerusalem to worship the one God. This psalm, it, just, it doesn't just display the unity of people traveling. It is such a beautiful expression of the desired unity of the church that God loves to see. It's no wonder the psalmist describes it as good and pleasant. The first thing you need to know today is that unity is good and pleasant. Those words might not seem as weighty or punchy as they ought to be because of its flippant use in our world today. But let's look at this a little bit more. The Hebrew word for good is the word is translated as excellent. It is also translated as best. When, uh, when I was writing this message, I found that the word good here in the passage is the same word that was used to describe the way that God described the world when he created it in the beginning. God said, let there be light. There was light and God saw that it was good. God spoke the earth into existence. He spoke the seas into the existence and he saw that it was good. God spoke the moon, the stars, the sun into existence and he saw that it was good. God spoke animals and sea creatures into being and he saw that it was good. Good indicated that God had given it approval. And so here we find the psalmist describing unity as something that is good. In other words, it's good in God's eyes and it's got God's approval. And you see, we also later uh, read in the New Testament that unity is so good, 
that even Jesus prays for unity before he was crucified on the cross. Unity is good, but the psalmist doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that unity is also pleasant. The word pleasant is used to describe the sense of happy satisfaction or enjoyment. It is the feeling of enjoying something or being satisfied with something. And another definition of the word pleasant is delight, which means to take great pleasure in. You see, unity is to be enjoyed. We ought to take great pleasure in coming together in unity. We ought to take great delight in coming together and living together in unity. Unity is not just good. Unity is also pleasant. But you see, it's very rare that you would find something that is both good and pleasant at the same time. It's either going to be good for you and not pleasant, or it's going to be pleasant, but not good for you. The Bible talks about how discipline seems painful rather than pleasant at the time. However, it yields fruit in the end. For example, working out, that's good. All that movement, it's good for your body. It's good for the mind. Uh, whether it's hit training, whether it's push-ups, whether it's a plank, whether it's sit-ups, you name it, working out is good. It's good for your body, but Lord have mercy. It's not always pleasant. Yeah, amen. No one agrees. Oh, okay, y'all are a bunch of working out people, eh? So you could be standing there boxing, but you're dying on the inside, <laughs> you know? Or you're trying to do the burpees, but deep down inside you are shooketh to your core because your body's like, you don't normally do this, <laughs> you know? And the thing about it is like when you watch those infomercials of people who are doing, you know, like sit-ups and they're like, they've got this grin, the smile on their face. Don't believe it. Don't be fooled, guys. It's not real. They're lying. But you see, working out is good, but it's not always pleasant. And the Bible also speaks on having something that is pleasant, but not good. Proverbs 25, 16 says that if you find honey, eat just enough, too much of it will make you vomit. Take banoffee pie, for example. Lord, I love, I love me some good banoffee pie. Banoffee pie is this dessert pie that's made from delicious toffee, cream, and bananas combined uh, on a buttery biscuit base that just melts in your mouth. It is absolutely pleasant. However, too much banoffee pie could make you sick. I watched someone make banoffee pie, and they poured the condensed milk into that thing, and they kept pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. Banoffee pie, delicious, pleasant, but too much of it is probably not good for you. And so what we have here is unity. Man, that was like a long beep, eh? dun, 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 dun. Unity. What we have here is unity. And it is not only described as good, but it's also described as pleasant. So what does that tell us? It means that it is not only just approved by God, but hey, we can go to town with it. We can have so much of it because it wouldn't hurt us at all. There are two pictures that the psalmist uses to describe unity. And I want to unpack this a little bit for us because they're going to help us to understand why unity within the church, the body of Christ, is so important. The first thing that we can read from the text is this. A unified church is an anointed church. A unified church is an anointed church. The first picture that we see here is uh, of what unity is like is this picture of precious oil being poured on the head and it's running down on the beard of Aaron right down to the edge of his garments. Oil in the Bible is used, to, uh, is used to anoint. It was common in the ancient Middle East culture to anoint people's heads with oil. It was a form of welcome. It was normal in the Middle Eastern culture to anoint the head with oil as a gesture of welcoming people into your home. It was to help them refresh and to give a good scent. What we see in that picture alone is unity flowing from the head. Christ is referred to as the head of the church and we 
are the body. And so unity is running down from the head, Christ, down onto the body, the church, the body of Christ. And so the first how-to of unity is that the body must first be submitted to the head, Christ. When we, the church, the body of Christ, are submitted to Jesus Christ, who is the head, when we are in Christ, the natural expression of that is unity. Being submitted to Jesus changes everything. When we are submitted to Jesus, we become united with Him. We sing about it all the time. No longer I who live, but Jesus, but Christ who lives in me. Being united with Christ means that having the mind of Christ, it means imitating Christ in the way that I live my life. It means living my life to reflect the nature of who Jesus is. In other words, being united with Christ means that I've got a new DNA. I'm born again. I'm of incorruptible seed. But you see, being united with Christ also means being united with the other members of the body of Christ. What am I saying? I'm saying that because I'm united with you, it means that I don't look at you as someone different no more. I don't look at you and disregard you and call you separate from me. No, I don't look at you and see you as less than me. No, because we are the body of Christ. We are one. It's no wonder the Paul Apostle wrote to the church in Galatians and he said, there is no more Jew, there's no more Gentile, there's no more slave or free. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Being united with Christ means being united with one another in the body of Christ. Romans 12, 5 says, we are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. And so whenever the thumb feels pain, the whole body feels pain. When the leg feels pain, the whole body feels pain. When the tooth feels pain, the whole body feels pain. Why? Because every member of the body is connected to the other. It means that the thumb cannot look at the shoulder and say, shoulder, we don't need you no more. It means that the shoulder cannot look at the knee and say, you're useless. The knee cannot look at the ankle and say, we don't need your help no more. Why? Because the Bible says that the way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as the church. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts that we don't. The parts that we can see and the parts that we can't see. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt. If one part flourishes, every other part is involved in the flourishing. Oh, but I want to challenge you today. How many of us are willing to say, yo, if there is any ill talk about you, I'm going to be shutting it down because you're my brother. You're my sister. You're not different no more. We are one in the same. How many of us are willing to say, yo, if life begins to throw things at you and you need someone to call on, you can call on me. You're no different from me no more. I'm your brother. I'm your sister. I will walk with you. I will journey with you. I will sit with you. I will hold you. I will hug you. I will cry with you. I will do life with you. Why? Because we're one. We're the body, one and the same. If we want to be an anointed church, we need to be a unified church first. A unified church is an anointed church. You see, there's specific mention of Aaron here in the text. You see, Aaron was a high priest. And in the Old Testament, the oil used to anoint priests was of a specific formula with specific ingredients and very specific measurements. It was a precious oil. It was so precious that God instructed the people not to anoint anyone or anything else with this oil other than a priest. On top of that, God's people were not allowed to make an oil of a similar kind because the oil was considered holy. 
It was such an aromatic oil that its fragrance could not be contained. And so we see the pouring of oil onto the head of Aaron, and it's running down his beard. The pouring of oil onto the head of a high priest meant a number of things. Not only did it represent anointing, it also represented sanctification, which means to make free from sin, to go from impure to pure. The pouring of the precious oil also meant to make holy, to consecrate, which means to set them apart from the world and to be dedicated to service uh, to the, for the service of the Lord. You see, the Bible says that we're not just the body of Christ, but we're also called a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We are God's very own possession. He called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And what that means is that we too, being a royal priesthood, are being anointed with the oil of the Holy Spirit. I need some Holy Ghost loving people to celebrate that right there. The literal pouring out of oil on Aaron is symbolic of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit from the hand of God. You see, sometimes we can be like, God, anoint this here. God, anoint that thing over there. God, pour out your spirit over here. God, anoint that thing over there. Anoint this. Anoint our service. Anoint that. And sometimes I wonder if Holy Spirit's like, nah, I'm good. How about you focus on your unity first? You see, because unity precedes the anointing. Unity precedes the anointing. Turn to the person next to you and say, a unified church is an anointed church. Amen. Can you just imagine that for a second, eh? Can you imagine how much of a threat we would all be to all of hell if we could just get our unity on point? You know, the moment that we come together, all of hell and all the demons in hell are like, everybody, take cover. Elam Christian Center Manurewa just woke up. Amen. Imagine how much of a threat that we would be to all of hell when we came together in unity. They'd have to rush around and pull all sorts of tactics and strategies and ideas because once there is unity, there God begins to pour out an anointing. There God begins to pour out Holy Spirit. We don't just become anointed, we begin to experience the outpouring of Holy Spirit. Revival will begin to break out. Shackles will begin to break. People begin to, to walk and break through. Addictions broken. People healed. People being saved. People being delivered. A unified church is an anointed church. This doesn't just apply to church though. It applies to every aspect and relationship in our lives. A unified worship team is an anointed worship team. A unified men's group is an anointed men's group. A unified mother's ministry is an anointed mother's ministry, but also a unified marriage is an anointed marriage. A unified family is an anointed family. A unified friendship is an anointed friendship. A unified relationship is an anointed relationship. The second thing you need to know is that a unified church is a refreshed church. Refreshed church. The second picture that we can see here is unity being likened to the Jew of Hermon. It's descending upon the mountains of Zion for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What you need to understand is that Mount Hermon is a mountain that is located in the northern part of Israel. It's quite a tall mountain and it is known for its cool temperatures and the amount of dew that settles on it. It is said that during the winter, Mount Hermon is covered with so much snow now, Mount Zion is a range of mountains that are located in the southern part of Israel. It's not as gigantic and tall as Mount Hermon. It's also said that there is barely any dew on it, rain or moisture that falls on Mount Zion. It's pretty dry during the summertime. 
Now, what the psalmist is saying in our text this morning is that unity is like the Jew over here on Mount Hermon descending on Mount Zion down here. The word translated descending is the same word as running down, like in the picture of the oil. Again, this tells us that the descending of the Jew is a blessing that comes down from God above. What a beautiful sight to behold the Jew of Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. Can you imagine the Jew of uh, Hermon touching the dry and parched grounds of Mount Zion and giving it moisture? Can you imagine the Jew of Hermon falling into the cracks and chasms of Mount Zion and giving it life, reviving its grounds and making it lush and green and beautiful? That's what unity looks like. The unity factor between these two mountains is the dew. The dew is what unites Mount Hermon and Mount Zion. It is again a picture of the church being united, being one, the old and the young, the high and the low, the north and the south, the pastor and the usher, the car park team and the worship team, the oxygen youth and the evergreens. Everybody is part of one body. It's called unity. You may be wondering, how does any of this have to do anything, you know, uh, uh, have to do anything with a unified church being a refreshed church? You see, I hope that you can hear my heart this morning. The dew is a picture of refreshing or being refreshed. And that what unity, that's what unity is like. It is refreshing. Church, if in our coming together Sunday after Sunday, if in our coming together to worship the Lord, if in our coming together to, to do the work of the Lord, if in our coming together in service of the Lord that we are not feeling refreshed, then perhaps we're harboring some disunity. Perhaps we need to look at our unity. And you may be asking me, well, how do I know if I'm harboring any disunity? You need to ask yourself this question. How much do I value unity? Ephesians chapter four, verse one says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And another meaning of the word calling there is invitation. An invitation, but an invitation to what? Paul goes on to explain to the church in Ephesians of how we have been invited into unity with Jesus. And so therefore, this unity with Jesus becomes evident in our unity with others. Ask yourself the question, how much do I value unity? Actually, how much do we love Jesus? Because we can't love Jesus, the head, and not love the body, the church. Christ died for the body, and so loving Christ means loving the body of Christ. You see, in the same way, being united with Christ means being united with his body, the church. If we view unity with God as something unimportant, it becomes evident in our relationship with God. We don't want to talk to God no more. We don't want to pray no more. We don't want to sit in the word no more. We don't want to do things his way. And so we begin to create the space between us and God. And in doing so, we cause our spirits to become drained, to become dried, to become parched instead of being refreshed. If we view unity with each other as something that's not important, it becomes evident in our relationship with one another. We think of ourselves as better than the others. It becomes more about what I want and what I hope to achieve and what I want to do and less about you. I become more and more consumed with myself that you begin to hear it in the way that I talk. You see it in the way that I walk. You begin to see it in the way that I live my life. It's become more about me and less about God, you and me. And in doing that, we become drained instead of being refreshed. Are you feeling drained where you should be feeling refreshed? Are you feeling frustrated where you should be feeling refreshed? 
Are you feeling like the need to strive where you should actually be living from a place of being refreshed? If you are, then perhaps there is some disunity. And today, I believe that we as a people, as the body of Christ, need to repent of some of the disunity that we may be harboring. Repent of the harm that we've done to ourselves. Repent of some of the words that we've spoken against each other. Repent of some of our attitude towards one another. Where there is unity, God commands a blessing. But how can God command a blessing when the space we're asking Him to occupy is full of disunity? How can God command a blessing when the space we're asking Him to occupy lacks mutual submission to one another? How can God command a blessing if the space we're asking him to occupy doesn't reflect the sacrificial love that's existent in the Trinity. You see, unity brings the anointing. Unity brings the power. Unity brings the blessing. Unity doesn't cause us to feel drained. No, it causes us to feel refreshed. And so you need to know today that a united church is not just an anointed church. A united church is a refreshed church. Psalm 133, verse one to three. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore with every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. We're going to pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And God, we just humble ourselves under your mighty hand. God, we thank you that the work of the cross is our invitation to come into unity with you. But Lord, we realize that as we partake in this uh, invitation of sacrificial love with you, God, that we also participate in sacrificial love and unity with one another. Lord, we confess that we haven't been the best at loving ourselves as the body of Christ. And so we repent, oh God, for harboring disunity, for the hurt we've caused the body and the words that we've spoken in our thinking and in our attitude towards one another. Right now, I pray, oh God, that we would be renewed in the spirit of our minds, that we would put on tender mercy, we would put on kindness, we would put on humility, we would put on meekness, we would put on long-suffering, bearing with and forgiving one another. God, I pray that we as the whole body be knit and joined together in unity. And as we do, God, I pray that it will be to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We never like to close our service without giving people an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and, you're, and you've realized I'm so far away from God. I'm not even in unity with God. I don't know what it means to come into unity with God and, uh, and have a relationship with God. Or maybe you're here and you were once walking with the Lord, but you've walked away from Him. I want to give you this opportunity. We refuse to dismiss the service without giving you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And so if you're here today, the first thing I want you to know is this. God loves you. God loves you. He loves you and He created you. He created you to know Him. He created you to come into loving fellowship with Him. He created you to be united with Him. But the Bible talks about this thing that keeps us disconnected and separated from God. That thing is called sin. Sin is doing things our own way. Sin is walking in disobedience to God. But also the Bible says 
that the penalty and the consequence of that sin is death. But you see, my friend, it didn't end there because God in his grace, he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that you and I didn't have to pay the consequence or that penalty of sin. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself what you and I deserved. But it didn't end there because even though he died on the third day, he rose again. Do you know what that means? Sin has no power. Death has no power. The grave has no power. Jesus conquered it all. And so God is extending his grace to you today. Forgiveness for your past, a new beginning right now, and a hope for your future and eternal life with him in heaven. But we must turn away from sin, turn our back to sin, turn to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus, put your hope in Jesus, put your trust in Jesus. The Bible says, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so if you're here today and you're saying, that's me, I want to come into unity with God through Jesus. I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want him to be the Lord of my life. If that's you, I'm going to count to three and I want you to raise your hand and then you can put it down straight away. You have no reason to be shy or afraid up in here. Nobody in this church was born holy. We are all sinners who've been saved by grace. But we want you to know we're right here with you and we've got your back. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you and you're saying, yes, I want to give my heart to Jesus, I'm going to count to three. You can raise your hand and you can put it down straight away. One, God loves you. Two, he's speaking to your heart right now. Three, raise your hand. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I see that hand. Thank you, I see that hand in the back. I see that hand, bro. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. But I need you to know this prayer doesn't even save you. Jesus saves you. This prayer is just an expression of you putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And so I want you to really mean it with all of your heart this morning. Come on, let's pray. Dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose again. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust you I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.